going to begin this uh, time together by uh, saying together the words in Ephesians chapter 4, uh, looking at uh, uh, verses from 1 through 6. And so uh, at this time, uh, let's stand together and then we'll read uh, those words, beginning with as a prisoner. Ready? As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling that you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope, when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Amen. Please be seated. When uh, Johnston and I got together to begin planning this uh, service, we thought a good uh, theme to talk about would be unity, oneness. And uh, this isn't just about formal unity, but at the same time, it's the experience of togetherness. It's not just that you're one, but that you experience that you are one. And our service today, of course, is an important event in the ongoing conversation as we consider seriously the prospect of becoming one church. And the hope would be that together we can better contribute to our Lord's work of building his church and advancing his kingdom I don't mind saying, and I checked with Johnston, that this is okay to say that both of us are excited about this prospect. uh, We would be faking it if we said we're neutral. You know, we don't really care if it works out or not. It's your decision. No, we're not exactly neutral. We're we're hopeful. How is that? And I hope that's okay. Our moderator, Kevin, has to pretend that he's neutral because it is, of course, our decision. And the same with me, um, being a transition pastor, I don't even have a vote on this. But Johnson and I are excited about the possibility. Can it happen? And uh, certainly under the Lordship of Christ, whose church it is, yeah, it can happen. But it requires the experience of unity, togetherness. Actually, in the process itself, There needs to be that sense of togetherness as we explore the possibility. And then, of course, unity in the outcome if we go that route. And then unity in the years that follow. I remember a conversation, a backyard conversation we had in our our place over the fence sort of thing as we we shortly moved to, after we had moved to Camrose, where I became the pastor of the First Baptist Church there. And uh, it was a very friendly conversation, and, uh, and uh, somebody commented, says, why so many denominations? 
why couldn't we be just one? And I said, yeah, I agree. Why couldn't we just all be Baptists? <laughs> that would solve it, wouldn't it? Or would it? I think, as you know, that there are a lot of Baptist denominations even. Uh, in Canada, we have five well-organized, well-known, different denominations. And then in addition to that, there would be a number of independent churches that would call themselves Baptists as well. But you know, you hear about the scandal of the divided church and all of that. But I want to say this morning, I think what's more important practically is the unity within our and any respective local church. Unity in the church. Because after all, it's in the local churches that the day-by-day, on-the-ground ministry is happening. And uh, it's there where you have visibility to the world, you know. Uh, I mean, they watch, they see that, especially if there's disunity. They see it. And it's in the local church especially that each of us, many of us, leaders especially, have considerable control. And with that responsibility. And so what we're looking at this morning is especially for us as a local entity, uh, for our respective congregations, and for us in the future if we become one congregation. And so let's look here then at ourselves, and especially as we consider the prospect of amalgamating Ephesians 4, 1 to 16 is such a rich portion of Scripture. It's a passage about the church. It addresses such themes as relationships, the functions of all the people, as well as the functions of the leaders, and how that we are all together called to be part of the ministry. And then there's that when things are in place, when there is good unity and things are happening that should be happening, you have that wonderful outcome that uh, Paul expresses in, uh, in verses uh, 15 and 16, uh, where he says, you know, instead of being like infants, in the previous verses he talks about being infants, not to be, it shouldn't be that way. He said, instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head that is Christ, from him the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love. When? As each part does its work. Boy, what about that? It's not about you and I as individuals only, seeking the kingdom and making sure we are okay but it's as each part does its work. Well, we're going to look especially at uh, verses uh, 3 to 6 today, and I'm going to bring in uh, verses uh, 1 to 2 as well later on. But as we look especially at uh, 3 and following, I want to frame my thoughts around the following headings. First of all, there's the effort at unity, and then there's a the basis he talks about there. And then I want to get practical and talk about the significance of unity. 
Why is it important? And then finally, the more immediate practice. How can we make this practical? But beginning, first of all, with the effort. In verse 3, Paul says, make every effort, every effort to keep the unity of spirit through the bond of peace. Every effort. And the term refers to zealous effort. It's like to take pains to make sure it happens and that there are uh, obstacles, there are difficulties. But to take pains and to have that resolute determination <laughs> that uh, those difficulties are being overcome. Make every effort to keep the unity. And he says in the bond of peace, peace was obtained when the hostilities that separated Jews and Gentiles were broken down. And both races were united in one new man in Christ. And here that the peace is that very bond, that bind between us, the bond of peace. Now I think it's significant. Paul doesn't say here, make every, every effort to create unity or to restore unity. I'm sure he would on certain occasions have to say that. But here he's saying keep the unity that's there. After all, we, we do have that bond of peace. And I think Johnny Erickson Tata was right on when she wrote that believers are never told to become one. We are already one. That's who we are. And then she says, and we're expected to act like it. Right on. Well, Paul expressed earlier that there is unity in Christ. Unity even between Jews and Gentiles. And to him that was amazing. He reveled in that reality. But we know that in actual practice, it's not, all, it's not always the experience. But we are called to be intentional, to be eager, spare no effort about unity. And that means not only when you're already in trouble, but also during the best of times so that you don't get into trouble. Okay? And that would indicate that the danger of divisiveness is always potentially near. That maintaining it is not automatic, but that it requires intentional effort. Now we might ask, well, why? Why would that be true? And I suggest it has to do with the business that we are in. Because we're in the people business. And one leader expressed it like this. He says, when I get to heaven, I've got to ask God why he used imperfect people to do his perfect will. And I suspect that his answer will be he couldn't find any other kind of people. Yeah. I think that's why the potential for divisiveness is always there. But being broken, being imperfect, being flawed people, yeah, always a potential for squabbles leading to division. And so for this reason, be eager, be on guard, make every effort to keep the unity of peace, unity together, the bond of peace. Now, as I move on to the next point, the basis of unity, I just want to say that unity 
cannot stand by itself as an abstract concept and yet be meaningful. But unity has to relate to something. It has to be for something. Unity around something, like a unity of a country that we love. Yeah, we want to be unified. Or how about a hockey team? You know, I wish those Oilers could have... I wish we could somehow go back, just project a couple of months and apply their current playing to what's been going on for the la uh, you know, last... for the whole for the whole year, the whole season, and we'd be in playoff position. But it's only when they play well together that the Oilers can win. And I know that Ken Hitchcock would agree. Not just a sense of togetherness or camaraderie, but in the faith community, it will be around certain, certain issues of faith. Unity around the issues of faith and so here Paul presents what we are unified about or what, you know, what is the basis of unity. And I notice there his repeated use of the word one, starting at verse 4. There is one body, one spirit, and you were called to one hope, uh, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. One, oneness. And that first part, you know, one body, one spirit. We know that, of course, that we're one body. Maybe for us it would be easy to kind of pass over it, take it for granted. But think of what that would have meant in the early church because of the past hostility between the Jews and the Gentiles and Samaritans. And as I said earlier here in Ephesians, Paul is literally reveling over this reality that the wall of hostility between them has been broken down. I read here from, from, uh, from verse 2.15 and verse 16, he says, by, uh, you know, the two have been made one, he says. He has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. One body, one spirit. The spirit who fell on the Jewish church in Jerusalem is the same spirit who fell on the Gentile believers later in Cornelius' house. And then he talks about one hope. And uh, one Lord, I want to pause on that one a little bit. One Lord, the Lordship of Christ is the very center of the gospel. And on the day of Pentecost, Peter proclaimed in chapter 2, verse 36, Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. And the early church refused to give this title to others who claimed it, notably the Roman emperor, when the title was claimed in a sense that implied the divinity. Specific example, Emperor Domitian, uh, A.D. 81 to 96, in the latter part of his reign, began to demand that his subjects address him as Lord and God. 
and worship his image. And for refusing to do so, many Christians were put to death, and others, like John, were exiled. Ah. In Acts chapter 17, we see a complaint of non-Christians in Thessalonica. And it says that some of the Jews were jealous of Paul and, and companions, and they testified against them to the city officials, and this is what they said. They are all defying Caesar's decrees saying that there is another king, one called Jesus. The lordship of Christ was at the very center of the proclamation. I don't want to say that is still the center of our proclamation. You know, there's a lot of things that Christians in different traditions disagree on, but I personally, I believe that the the distinguishing test between the mere nominals and those who are serious is this very thing. Are they giving allegiance to the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lordship of Christ? No human king or president or prime minister or CEO, but Jesus Christ. And so the gospel call is to come under his supreme authority, giving him first allegiance. And that's part of that one faith, he says here. And then one baptism, one God and Father of all. And ultimately our unity is in God who is one through our relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, part of the common faith in knowing him as Father. And so it's unity around something, unity built upon some basics, not unity at any price or unity without truth but unity that's based on these basic Christian truths, basic, generic Christian non-negotiables, as, for example, we express in some of the creeds, like the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed. Okay, make every effort based on Christ and all the truths that go around that. But now we need to ask, why is unity so important? The significance of it. Make every effort. Well, why? Why does it matter? I want to give you two reasons. The first one is we have a mission. There is something to do and accomplish. There is that mission that is for every church as given in the Great Commission, and that is to make disciples, baptizing them. But it doesn't stop there. It says teaching them to observe all that I've commanded, all that I've taught you, the 12 of you, what I've taught you, you are to pass it on, teach all those things. So it isn't just, you know, get them saved, but it's bring them up in the faith, the mission. There is that generic mission for every church, but every church is unique and needs to define their own unique mission, vision, sense of purpose. Who are we? What is our particular identity? What is our appropriate mission coming out of our, out of our identity given the local context that we find ourselves in? Whatever we set out to be common to do, we can only do it when we work together as a team. Unity, unity for mission. When there is a strong dynamic of togetherness, when there is unity, then we can do a mission. There's a collection of fables credited to Aesop, Aesop, a slave and a storyteller believed to have lived in ancient Greece between 620 and 
564 before Christ. And one of those fables is about a lion that prowled around in a field in which four oxen dwelled. And the lion, you know, smell of beef, often tried to attack them. But whenever he came near, they turned their tails to one another so that whichever way the lion approached them, from, from where he approached them, the lion was met by the horns of one of the oxen. At last, however, the oxen started to quarrel among themselves, and each went off to pasture alone in a separate corner of the field. <laughs> the lion saw his chance, attacked them one by one, and soon made an end of all four. Could it be that our enemy's favorite tactic is to divide? See that? That would be enough. That would be enough to win battle after battle. Let's attack this church. Let's attack that one. Let's, let's attack this church because they're, they're already divided or there's a potential for dividing them. And so unity is essential to our mission. That's pretty obvious. But I want to add to that, there's a, there's a nuance that I think is very relevant for us at this time, and that is we need a spirit of togetherness as we work at defining our vision and mission. If we should become one, and we're going to be one church over at Ambleside, then we need a spirit of unity as we have the conversations, as we think carefully, what does the Lord seem to be saying to us that what exactly should be our vision? Unity because of mission. But there's another reason. In fact, I would say that the second reason here for the significance of unity is even foundational to the mission part. And it is simply this, the nature of the gospel. If I were to ask you, what is the gospel, what would you say? Well, you might say it's the gospel of love. I could, I could sing of your love forever. And in eternity, it seems that's what we're going to be doing. We're going to sing about his love. Or you could say it's the gospel of forgiveness or it's the gospel of grace. But I want to say that it's at its core, it is the gospel of reconciliation. Bringing parties together. Sin separates. Sin drives a wedge between parties, between people and God between people and people. It even causes divisions within ourselves. And yes, when we sin entered the world, it also drove a wedge between people and nature. The cosmos was cursed. But the gospel is about Christ dying for our sins and rising again in order to bridge that separation. One pastor observed, Satan's strategy is to separate. God's strategy is to reconcile. I think he's right. Strategy of the enemy. Divide. Divide and conquer. Why not? But the gospel is about reconciliation. God's strategy is to bring people together. Colossians 1, 19 and 20 talks about even, even the cosmos earth, the heavens, stars, the whole thing 
is to be reconciled. In him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And so unity then is more than just good strategy for our mission. It also and especially demonstrates the very gospel itself, which is about reconciling. And it becomes a reflection here and now of what God will do fully in the future. The effort basis, the significance. Well, how about the practice? How can we participate in what he says here to make every effort? And you know, I, th I think that it would be a good discussion sometime to have, and we could probably come up together with a multitude of reasons, a long list. I'm going to offer three today. And the first is this, live according to the Christ-like qualities in the previous context. Verses 1 and 3, where Paul talks about these, well, Christ-like qualities. He says, be completely humble and gentle. Be patient bearing with one another in love, and then make every effort. And I want to point out something. I, I really think the translation that, that runs these two together is a more accurate translation. NIV decided to make it a separate commandment, and maybe it stands out that way. Uh, I like the RSV or the new RSV in this. Instead of make every effort, making every effort. You see? It just runs it together with humility, patience, forbearing one another in love. There's no stop between the two. They run together. And so that would, that would indicate to us that these qualities that are so important, my humility, your humility, my patience, my meekness, you know, forbearing one another in love, so important, but it's not just about me, okay? I mean, I want to look like Jesus too, but maybe that's secondary. This is about these qualities within the congregation so that we can have unity. How about that? You know, if there's little humility in the mix, there will be little unity, little gentleness, little patience, little bearing with one another in love, and there will be little unity. And perhaps there is nothing more significant than any of us can do, that any of us can do, more important than simply exude these qualities. Humility, patience, uh, forbearing one another in love. And, uh, but then the second one I want to talk about, and I think, I think that's especially relevant as we consider perhaps we could always be together like this. <laughs> I'd like that. Wow. Um, and it's simply this. Welcome diversity. Welcome diversity. Diversity is actually a good thing. Think of the difference here between unity and uniformity. Unity means having a unified spirit working together 
Uniformity means sameness. It's like cookie-cutter sameness. Good for cookies, but not for people. You know? Uh, think of uh, Tim Horton's coffee. Many of you go there and you expect sameness. I enjoyed my Tim Horton's yesterday. I expect it to be the same today. Sameness, cookie cutter. I prefer Starbucks, actually. Oh. <laughs> but you expect sameness, right? That's, um, that's uniformity. But no, think of unity more this way. Unity among us means living in harmony. Think of the choir. Most of the notes, it's probably three, por uh, three, you know, three, three point harmony, right? The, uh, the bass and the tenor are singing maybe the same note, but there are other possibilities. Four part, five part. I love those chords that have five different notes in them. Diversity, and it's beautiful. And th there is a sense in which the greater the diversity of the people in a church, the greater is the testimony of reconciliation. Doesn't that make sense? If these diverse people can be together in unity, doesn't that especially demonstrate the gospel of reconciliation? You know, the ideal church would be something like this, consisting of the wealthy and the poor, the marginalized and the successful, the professionals and the blue-collar workers and those who aren't able to find work at all, the older folk and the younger folk, and the many, many different ethnic and racial groups. And we're doing quite well at that this morning. But that in itself is a testimony to the gospel of reconciliation, the singles and the married, and those whose lives are broken, and those who are doing well, and people in all stages of Christian maturity. That would be the ideal church, and I suspect that there's no church that will cover the whole spectrum. But I, I dare, t I stand by the statement that the greater the diversity, the better, the clearer the demonstration of the gospel. Yeah, reconciliation. How can I make every effort, especially through these Christ-like qualities, humility, patience, meekness, forbearing with one another in love, welcoming diversity. Hey, it's different. Good, I'm glad. I'm glad this, these differences are being added to the mix. And then finally, a mindset. And it's a mindset of three qualities that I want to present here. The following three qualities, and they, they're all S, S's, so it'll be easy to remember. I'm talking about the qualities of surrender, stewardship, and servanthood. First, the mindset of surrender. Lord, what is your will? Not my will be done. And as we often sing, it's all about you, Jesus. Let his will be done. The mindset of stewardship. It is his church. We are here just to manage. 
Now, there's a natural inclination that we all have. In fact, it's important. It's a good inclination if it's used correctly. And the inclination is to use, to leverage our strengths. And we need that. We need to kind of know who am I, what am I good at, and I should try to do something that I'm, I'm good at. And so we use our strengths in a good way. But there is a temptation to sort of leverage our strengths to our own advantage and perhaps for our church in a protective way, okay? What are our strengths? Well, think of Ambleside. It's, of course, the assets. We have the property. We have the building fund. And the inclination could be for us to negotiate out of our strength, to use our leverage to drive a hard bargain, and maybe not so hard, but, you know, to get a little bit of an advantage because of that. And for the gathering, your strength, well, the people, numbers. With numbers, you could, of course, dominate. Any time a vote is taken, you have the numbers. And so the temptation, I think, on both sides can be to use our respective strengths to our own advantage as we carry on the conversation and as we plan the process. So what is the answer to all that? Stewardship. Stewardship. An awareness that it is all his. It belongs to him. The assets belongs to him. The people. And in stewardship, we are called upon to think how can we use these assets, you know, in a way that's best for the kingdom. Uh, how can we lead the people in the best way for the kingdom, the best way possible for his kingdom? Stewardship. It's his. All of it. And then finally coming out of a mindset of surrender and stewardship, a mindset of servanthood. Thinking, being aware, being intentional, we are here to serve. To serve one another. Some of you made significant contribution for the service today. Serving. Hopefully you do it cheerfully, realizing that's the call. We want to be servants. We want to serve one another. And then when we get over to Ambleside, we want to reach out in our corporate culture as a local corporate body of Christ to serve the community. One of the studies that is very recent comes out of Ambrose University where they, uh, they did a research project looking at what are common denominators out of flourishing churches. They didn't divide between different denominations at all, but churches that seem to be flourishing, what are the common denominators? And one of them is simply they are an asset to their neighborhood. Okay? And so if we go over to Ambleside, we want to look carefully. How can we as a congregation, as a church, how can we be of service to this neighborhood? How can we add value to that place? Mindset, surrender. Not my will, but thine be done. Stewards, we're managing all this. It's all yours. 
And then out of that, a mindset of servanthood. We're called to serve. Let's pray that we might be among those who are an answer to the prayer that Jesus gave as recorded to us in John 17. He's talking to his heavenly Father. And this is what he says among many other prayer requests. He says, I and them, talking about his, his followers, I and them and you and me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. doesn't stop there. Then the world will know that you have sent me and love them even as you have loved me. Let's pray briefly and then we'll sing in response. Lord, we do pray that we will be part of that body of believers that demonstrate unity in the experience of a togetherness where we wouldn't want to miss out on. In Jesus' name, amen.